Hello, and welcome to the Crossroads Podcast, the show where Mark Meckler and Rita Peters discuss hot-button issues from a biblical perspective, helping to equip other Christians to bring light to a darkened culture. Rita is the Senior Vice President of Legislative Affairs, and Mark serves as the CEO and co-founder for Convention of States Action. Find out more by visiting conventionofstates.com slash pod. Hello, friends, and welcome to another edition of Crossroads, where faith and culture meet. I'm your host, Rita Peters, along with my co-host, Mark Mackler, who is Convention of State President and co-founder. Mark, how's it going today? I'm good. I love doing this, and especially, I mean, I love doing Crossroads with you, but specifically, I love talking about servant leadership, so I'm really excited about today's program. Yeah, me too. It's a good one. It's packed, though. We have a lot of material to get through. So for those of you who maybe are just joining us for the first time, today is the third in our 10-week series of programs on the whole concept of servant leadership. And Mark, I want to remind everyone listening that this material is not just for business leaders in some sort of an office setting. That's usually where you hear talk of, you know, learning leadership principles But learning the concepts of servant leadership is really about learning how to impact and influence the people around us. And that is really central to what our Crossroads program is all about, impacting our culture with biblical truth. Mark, would you agree that these principles are useful in all walks of life? Oh, for sure. And, you know, I think a lot of people who might be listening think, well, I'm I'm not a leader. I'm not in any position of leadership. And I want people to understand, I hope they'll understand that everybody's in a position of leadership. And you go out and you live your life. And if you're married, you have a position of leadership in your family. If you have kids, you're leading your kids. If you have coworkers, even if you're not a manager, you're leading by example. Uh, and also remember that discipleship is leadership. So if you're out there if you're living the Great Commission, if you're if you're working to introduce people to Christ and you're helping to make disciples, that's the ultimate form of servant leadership. So whether you're a mom or a grandma or you work at Starbucks or whatever, you're absolutely involved and can be a better servant leader. Yeah, that's right. And we are called to a life of discipleship, right? So as a reminder, we are walking through the book called Servant Leadership by David Kuhnert. That's K-U-H-N-E-R-T. We are using the first edition of the book as our guide, and you can buy the book on Amazon. Just look for Servant Leadership by David Kuhnert. Now, back with us today for what might be the final time in our series is Chris Thomas, who's going to help us walk through chapter three. Chris is a mentor and a coach on this topic of servant leadership. So Chris, welcome back to the program. Thanks, Rita. Really great to be here with you guys this week again. We're glad to have you. So last week in chapter two, we talked about goal setting and the three different kinds of goals. I love that because people need to understand they got to have goals if they want to move their life forward. Now we're moving into understanding our current reality. And this is actually my favorite part of the book because we're going to talk about what reality looks like, how to know what the book calls our here. Where are we right now? 
Uh, and David in the book, he warns us, it sounds simple, but it can be really difficult. So Chris, why don't you explain why that can be so hard for people to understand their current reality? I think I mentioned last week that it's very tempting for us, or if I didn't, then this is a great time to mention it. It's very tempting for us when we learn about these principles in servant leadership to apply them to everyone else in our lives and talk about how they're missing the mark in various different things. It's just kind of a native thing for us as sinners to focus on other people and their problems and not think about ourselves. So David is constantly reminding us in the book, chapter after chapter, that these principles are first for self-reflection, they're first for self-application as a leader. And I think that the reason why moving into determining where our here is is so difficult is because that's a difficult process. Self-reflection and understanding and being very brutally honest about what our real strengths, what our real weaknesses, what capabilities we can improve and what we can't, or how far we've made it down the path to our goals. It's, that's a difficult thing to actually try to tackle on our own. I like to think that it's better to do it with uh, good confidence in your life. Uh, Mark, a mentor of yours and mine, Carlo Walt, back when I worked for him years and years and years ago, he gave me the advice of creating a spiritual board of Chris, uh, having three mentor figures that I call and ask you know, for reflection to help me see if I'm seeing my life the right way. And then three peers that know me really well and are willing to tell me hard truths too. So I think that doing something like that, inviting other people into the conversation who you trust and who you know know you very well can help you to get a better and clearer picture of where you're actually at right now. And so <clears throat> I think trying to tackle alone can be really difficult when you invite other people in, it makes it a little bit easier. Yeah, because nobody is completely self-aware, right? No one is like perfectly able to assess exactly where we are at, you know, in any given aspect of life. So I love what you're saying about the importance of involving trusted confidants, people who know us and um, people who really do have our best interest in mind. And it's important to have those people around us who are willing to speak even difficult truths to us, right? Rather than just telling us what we want to hear. Now, chapter three is called Power or Influence and Leadership Styles. And it starts by pointing out that we only have influence over someone to the extent that they believe we have influence over them. So why is that important for us to remember? And also, maybe you can comment on whether we're using power and influence interchangeably here. I like the term influence better just because there's some negative connotations around the idea of power, but there could even be negative connotations around the idea of influence. And of course, it's become really popular lately to talk about social media influencers. But the reality is David actually has been using this term longer than that term has been around and been used. And so we have to understand what is David talking about by influence and and power and how is he using them synonymously with each other? And I, I think the illustration he uses that's really good to help us understand this is parenting. When you are a parent, you have influence with your kid. Uh, in the early days, when your kids are really small, your influence is more authoritarian, right? You're giving them their boundaries. You're speaking into their lives in a way that doesn't give them much of an option. You're trying to lay the foundations of their life to be healthy and safe. There's power in that. 
it's not a negative thing. It, it can be used in a negative way. Many of us know lots of examples of parents who use that power that they have over the kids in negative or, or destructive ways. And that, that always can occur, but it is by, by itself, just objectively some form of power or influence as the kid gets older and begins to gain their own autonomy, you move out of that kind of direct authoritarian game to more of an influence game. You're, you are speaking into their life, hoping to have a voice that influences them for the long term. And if you think about that in the role of leadership, when you're leading anybody, you have that same exact role. You are in a position where you are using all of your resources to help the other person to get there, which means that you need to carry some sort of influence into that relationship. So David wants to give us a firm foundation. What are the different kinds of influence and power that we can we can use and uh, where are they appropriate? Where are they not appropriate? So the book describes five different kinds of power or influence that Dave walks through. So we understand different ways that we have an ability to influence people's lives. Can you run through those five for us? Yeah. So the important thing to remember as we run through these five is none of them are negative. They're all natural types of leadership, influence and power that that can be used. The negativity can come in any of these when they're misused or when they're inappropriately used. So we'll we'll kind of give a little bit of an example of the appropriate use and maybe even the inappropriate use in each of these. The first one he talks about is position uh, influence. And this is when you, the very position that you have, like, so maybe you outrank somebody in the military if you're, uh, if you're a member of our armed forces. Uh, that position that you have gives you a certain amount of influence, power, authority over the people that you're leading. It doesn't matter if they like you. It doesn't matter if they agree with you. They have to follow you or there's some serious potential consequences, right? Because of your, just because of your position. So that could be used obviously positively. If you are in a position to influence somebody, if you are a teacher or if you are the, the CEO of a, a nonprofit or, or whatever, you can use that power positively to inspire people, to motivate them, to help them see where how they can get there. Or you can also use it in for destructive things. And we've all seen people with position influences using it for destructive purposes. The next kind is coercive. Coercive influence is probably the one we tend to think of as negative the most. But honestly, if you want to think about who exerts coercive influence the most in our society, it's probably our law enforcement. And if there is somebody running through the streets with a gun wildly shooting at others, we want our police officers to have coercive influence. We want them to use whatever power they possibly can, whether that's lethal or less than lethal force to stop the person. We want them to do that. But we've also all seen um, horrendous video footage of, of cops, not, not the stuff that's been blown up that way, but real actual cases where cops have misused that coercive power, right? And that is damaging. It's damaging to that to that role. It's damaging to uh, our trust of law enforcement. And so coercive power can be used both positively and negatively. The next that he talks about is reward influence. Reward influence is being able to give somebody a benefit for them doing what was right. So if you're a boss, noticing that your, your employee is doing really well and then giving them a bonus or giving them a raise would be a type of reward influence. Or maybe if you are a teacher giving somebody an A because they did really well on their essay, uh, that would be kind of a type of reward influence. But we've also seen people who use reward influence in negative ways. My dad used to work in uh, automotive mechanics 
and he didn't play the game of the internal politics of of the shop very well. And so he, he would get assigned jobs that were the worst jobs, the jobs that took the longest to do and had the least amount of pay. And others who played the game better got assigned the primo jobs, the jobs that would be rated for 90 minutes, but would really take 45 minutes to do. And so they would make a lot more money than my dad because he wasn't playing the game in the in the office. That's reward influence that's being used poorly, right? Where, where it's rewarding the wrong thing. Uh, expert influence. Expert influence is, is somebody, this is the next kind of influence David talks about. It's somebody who has an expertise, somebody who is trained and has experience the, that gives them the ability to speak authoritatively on something. And so we have one within Convention of States, Ralph Nadelson, uh, incredible expert influencer, incredible expert uh, power. And his use of it is is incredible too. I, I respect uh, Professor Nadelson incredibly. Just from little interaction I've had with him, he's an incredible man. Um, and so the his expert influence is used positively, used to build up, used to inform. But we've seen maybe some uh, figures in public life recently, uh, I won't say any names, uh, who maybe use their expertise, years and years of influence, leading a certain bureaucracy and other things to do things that we, we don't agree with, right? That shouldn't have been done. Uh, and so expert influence can also be used poorly. The last kind of influence that he talks about is referent influence. And this is actually the crux of the, the chapter more than anything. These other kinds of influence are to make us aware of how those influences work and how they could be used positively or negatively. But his point is really to get to this last kind, referent influence. This is the kind of power influence that you have when other people just see you living life so well, they give you their respect. They give you their uh, ability to be influenced. They want to be influenced by you because they see how well you're you're living your life. Now, I would say that this of the five is the only one that can't be used negatively, particularly, right? Because if you really are a referent leader, you're not gonna use it to tear down. You're not gonna use it in an inappropriate way. You're going to use it to build always. And so if you've worked to, and you, you are trying to be a referent leader, you won't abuse that power. You will actually really genuinely care about others and serve them with everything that you have. Yeah, so, Thanks, David. That's really helpful. Um, just the way David goes through each of those uh, types of influence or power. And I know, you know, we can all think about different people who have those types of influence in our own lives. And then we need to think about who we have those types of influence over. And Chris, David makes it really clear, as you said, that referent power is the one that we're aiming for. And it seems like it's possible for anyone to obtain it. Um, so he goes into a discussion about the tenets of referent, referent power. So explain those for us. So he gives us uh, something that's based off of actually a program that was in the army when he was in the army uh, called the comprehensive soldier fitness program and it looks at your life through the mental model of of like a structure a house where you have a foundation the foundation is your values and then on top of that foundation are the different areas of your life now in the the comprehensive soldier fitness program there was five pillars uh and those pillars i think were the physical um mental, emotional, social, family team pillar, and spiritual pillar. I, I think they left off the financial pillar, which is uh, one that David adds on, and he, he gives six pillars. 
And then he, he references those pillars as holding up your transcendent there, the roof of that structure of the mental model of your life that is resting on your values, is lived out in the areas of your life, and then it holds up your transcendent there, the thing that is guiding your life towards your life purpose, your life direction. Um, and so those, essentially what he says is that those pillars are the areas that we gain referential influence when we live each area of our life well. And he lists them in a very particular way that I really like. It's an order of uh, impression. So he says your first impression of somebody is going to be a phys your, their physical impression, right? So when you first meet someone, it's hard to not be influenced by the way they look, by the way they carry themselves, by how they dress, by, you know, how they um, keep their hygiene, all of that stuff. And then when you start to get to know them, you'll start to get to know their social pillar, whether or not they're friendly, affable to other people, they can have carry good conversation and read the room. Uh, then you start to learn a little bit about their mental, emotional um, ability. Are they smart? Are they, are they emotionally capable in understanding the emotions of people around them and their own? Then if you start to get to know them even more, you get to know their how they treat the people closest to them, their family or team pillar. Uh, and it isn't until you get to know somebody really well that you start to get to really know their spiritual aspect of their life or at the very, very tail end of the impressions, their financial aspect. And you might not ever actually really know their financial aspect. Just because somebody's rich doesn't mean that they're healthy financially. Uh, I know a lot of poor people who use their money in incredibly healthy ways and are very smart with money. And I know a lot of poor people who or a lot of rich people who blow their money. <laughs> and so it, m having money isn't the issue. It's how you steward it. And, and really, actually, all six of those pillars are about stewardship. How do you steward these areas of your life? How do you take care of them? And how do you honor God in each one of those categories? So he talks about how being able to make goals in each of these pillars that can then strengthen your transcendent there as you strengthen each of those pillars. So we got to put energy into those pillars for them to be able to grow. So Chris, would you suggest that it it's a good exercise for people to maybe take some time and go through each of those pillars and and sort of do a self-assessment, you know, think about where you are with each of them and, you know, I, I remember when I went through this material for the first time, thinking about the fact that for a given person, they might have a, be super strong in one or two of the pillars, but also be super weak in a couple of others. Um, and it almost seems like we tend to maybe focus on the ones that are easy for us or the ones that, you know, come naturally to us. Some people love to work out, you know, and health is really important to them. So they spend a lot of focus on on maybe the physical pillar, but maybe, you know, aren't paying as much attention to their financial pillar and aren't as responsible with money. So what, you know, what is the application for us as we think about these different Again, these pillars are tenets of referent power, which is, you know, our ability to influence others just by virtue of, you know, who we are and and how how good of a role model we can be. How, what's the application, would you say, for people? Yeah, I I used to think that the pillars should be our focus, right, that we would work on the six pillars. But then I had conversations with David Kuhnert, and I also had conversations with a couple at King's College that are using servant leadership pretty extensively with in partnership with Tim Dunn. 
And uh, in both those conversations, it became very, very clear to me that the six pillars mean nothing if they aren't resting on some very solid values. So mm. I think you have to actually start back at your values. And one of the things we tried to uh, do a little bit of testing on this last year with our internship program with the um, Convention of States, we call it our Emerging Leader Program, is we offered a pilot program for any students who were interested in being a part of it. And we ran through some exercises with them to try to help them identify what are their values. And it was more than just identifying what their what their pie in the sky idea of what their value should be. It was identifying what are their actual lived values, looking at a two week audit of how they use their time. Um, mm. Where does their time get put to show how they actually value things? And then looking at how they use their money, looking at how they use their relationships. Uh, what what do those things tell you about the actual values that you have right now? And then we had them ask three people. This is something I actually got directly from David. I had them ask three people for an adjective that describes them or three adjectives that describe them. And one of the great things about that, David, it's a brilliant exercise that David taught me in the conversation with him was that if you ask somebody to share your their values with you, they're gonna come up with the best sounding things possible. But are those the actual things that they're living? No, but if you ask them, <laughs> what, what, what would your best friend use in three words to describe you? Mm. And by, hearing it through the or seeing it through the lens of how somebody else is perceiving you it's a better test of whether or not the values that you would want to have are actually the ones that you're putting forward or not so by doing all of that you can then clarify what your values currently are and then determine are those what my values what i want my values to be you know so i might say that i want my values to be my family but if I spend almost no time with my family and I spend no time caring for my kids and my wife and, and taking care of my house and other things like that, is that really a priority for me? Is that really a value? No, it's not. Whatever I am spending my time, my money and my energy and relationships on, that is my value. So if I want family to be my value, now I can look at my six pillars and say, where am I missing in my six pillars in my value of putting my family first? And then I can set goals, smart goals, like we talked about last week to improve each one of those things. Is it, is it my physical presence with my family? Am I missing too often? Well, what smart mm -hmm. goals do I need to set to set boundaries around my work, set boundaries around what I commit to, what I say yes to, to make sure that I have the time to spend with my family. And so I think it really starts with that, that base level in application with your values. And once you know what your values are, what you, once you say here, this is my value system, then you could start looking at your pillars and say, do these pillars reflect, reflect those values? And if they don't, then that's when you start setting smart goals for yourself to start moving the direction of living those values out in each of those pillars. And then that'll develop reference leadership over time. But it takes time. It's not something you're going to get overnight, right, Mark? <laughs> you know, this is really interesting to me. I, it's so funny because I've taught this book for a long time, Chris, and every time, especially get to this section, I start to turn inward and think, am I really living my values? And I really aspire to referent kind of influence and referent leadership. And, but I always, this forces me to stop and I got to admit it's always uncomfortable. And so this is not easy stuff that we're talking about, but this is also literally just directly out of the Bible. If you're trying to live a Christian life, the question isn't how much scripture, you know, the question isn't how often you go to church. The question is, how are you living your life? You know, you say you have a value set that you've adopted because you're a Christian and you you believe that Jesus Christ is your savior. But then the question is, really, are you living that life? And that's what we're talking about here. 
about doing a self-assessment, having friends look at you, and they're essentially, you're asking them to tell you, are you living the Christian life? Because you, that's your value set, I'm presuming, if you're listening to the show. So I think this is really important. And it carries into leadership, of course, because if you're not living your values, why would anybody want to follow somebody who's not living their stated values? That's a serious break in integrity, really. Integrity means you're a whole person, you're integrated. So if you're saying one thing, if as Chris said, if you're saying I'm a family person, you know, that's the most important thing to me. And meanwhile, your family is like, yeah, we never see dad. We never see him. All they do is work or, you know, whatever it is that all they do is focus on working out. They're a triathlete and that's all they care about. And they burn their time doing that instead of on us. Other people see that, trust me. They see it from the outside a lot more clearly than we see it from the inside. And so this is really important, this concept of integrity, living out your values. And again, on a personal level, I find it it's not easy. It takes time and it takes energy to actually peel back the layers and look at this and to work with people you trust. So as you do this and as you're trying to make sure your pillars are in place and you're living your values, now you talk about leading. And when you lead, there are different leadership styles you can choose. And I really recommend you choose a leadership style because if you don't choose, then you're just doing it randomly. So he talks about leadership styles in the book, David does. Can you briefly run us through what he talks about as far as different leadership styles? Yeah, he gives a, a list of different ways that you can lead. And they're, they're oftentimes kind of a progressive type of leadership right? When you start in leading somebody, you're going to start at a certain level and then you'll, you'll want to progress your leadership and that person's leadership to something different. Um, and he uses parenting again to talk about this. And so he starts with the concept that, that our first leadership style with our parents is more directive. We give them more tight boundaries and more, we have more control over that person's life. So if you have a new employee who just started in your business, that's the kind of leadership you're probably going to start out with as you're doing training with them. You're going to be much more directive. You're going to be much more tight with the boundaries of what they're free to choose to do within their responsibility set. And you're going to be training them very specifically specifically to do something a very specific way. And you're not going to be giving them a lot of leeway to play because you want them to learn how to do it the right way before they start finding hacks or shortcuts or <laughs> whatever else, right? And so you're you're more in that directive phase. The second type of leadership style he talks about is, tran, uh, is transactional. And once you've moved past the directive phase, now you're doing more like you do this for me and then I do this for you, right? And you can think about that with your little bit older elementary kids, right? You do these chores, I give you a, uh, a I give you an allowance every single week or, or you get points to buy something or, or whatever it might be. So there's this very transactional nature. And David, uh, in conversations with him, he's talked about this with his work with Crown Quest when they first get an employee in and they have them meet with a mentor to do some goal setting. At first, the goal setting is very directive. It's very much this you need to do this you need to set these goals but the person is usually not very comfortable with setting goals for themselves and being self-reflective in that way so they're just kind of like begrudgingly do it but then they realize oh if i do my goals i'll get you know a bonus or i'll get you know some kind of benefit and reward in my employment so that it becomes more transactional but the goal after that is to move into a participative type of leadership where they're actually participating with you in that leadership and and they are actually engaging it as much equally in the in the relationship that you have with them as you are and so they're more an equal partner in it 
but you don't want to stop there. You want to move more towards delegative where you can actually give the other person um, the responsibility and you're more standing back and just observing and watching and they have a lot more autonomy. They've grown with the ability to work within the boundary set effectively and self-govern well. You're something you're going to talk about in the next chapter, that freedom V. You're moving up that freedom V. Uh, just remember that reference for for next week. But the the best kind of of leadership that we really want to happen is the the bit the final step that he talks about, which is transformational leadership, where the person is not only owning the leadership of themselves, but they're also beginning to actually um, influence other people. They're beginning to have an, an influence and a power in other people's lives in a, in a um, positive way because they become a leader that reproduces themselves, that duplicates themselves in other people. And I, I think that a simple way to about boil this whole process down and these different leadership styles down is to talk about it in terms of something we've heard a lot. Like when we start with somebody who's an apprentice or a kid, we often think about the process as being, I do, you watch. But then we move to, I do, you help. Then we move to, you do, I help. And then finally, you do, I watch, right? So it's a it's a reversing. You take the person slowly through a process of becoming comfortable with whatever they're doing to where they begin to own it and they, they're doing it completely on their own autonomously. <laughs> so it's that same kind of process in these leadership styles. So really, the leadership styles is about assessing where is this person at? What is the safest place for them to be at? Is it more directive form of leadership? Do they need that more in their life? Do they need tighter boundaries to, to practice what it means to do this role or this job that I'm helping to lead them in? Uh, are they more in that delegative phase? Of, can I trust them to delegate things to them and, and know that they're gonna take a certain level of responsibility and ownership? Or are they, are they in the, fully in that transformational stage where they need very little from me, but uh, a little bit of accountability and and uh, encouragement here and there, but they're really going to take it and they're going to fly because they, they become the kind of leader that wants to see that reproduced in others. So it's really a self a reflective tool with others to determine where are they at? How should I be leading them in this appropriately in the space that they're in? Mm, that's really helpful. Gentlemen, we are already out of time, believe it or not, but I just want to close with this um, summary from the end of this chapter. David Kuhnert writes, when working on our values or pillars to gain influence, it should be to serve others and not ourselves. We should want to have a greater influence with others to show how to do life the way God intended us to live it. This influence through referent power helps us use transformational leadership to create a culture of giving and serving others. And gentlemen, it's an honor to have had you both here because you are both great examples of doing that. And unfortunately, we've got to close. So I want to end by thanking our generous sponsors at Blue Ridge Chimney Services, Blessings Christian Bookstore, Sunshine Ministries, Wishing Well Flores, and our good friends at New Beginnings Church and Garber's Church of the Brethren. Thank you all for listening and for your financial support. If you'd like to make a donation to help keep Crossroads on the air, you can do so by check to Crossroads at P.O. Box 881, Harrisonburg, Virginia, 22803. I'm Rita Peters with Mark Meckler, inviting you to join us again next week for another edition of Crossroads, where faith and culture meet. Thank you for listening to the Crossroads podcast. To learn more about Convention of States, go to conventionofstates.com.